the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning, morning 5th, 5th of February. February. Good morning, Good morning. With, with much debate, debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Nurses embarked on a second day of strike action at 8 o'clock this morning. The 24-hour strike will be followed by another day of strike action on Thursday. Three rolling days of strikes next Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and two more days of strike action the week after with no scope for finding a resolution to the dispute over recruiting and retaining nurses, which nurses say requires a 12% pay increase. Yesterday, the government said it was willing to return to talks on a range of issues other than pay to try and resolve this dispute. Nurses reacted angrily, saying Ministers Harris and Donoghue were confusing patients by trying to govern by press release. The INMO said the statement from the Minister for Health and the Finance Minister was spin, masquerading as substance an insult to nurses who say they have not been approached to re-enter talks. Senator Colin Burke is Fine Gael's spokesperson on health in Shannon Erin and a member of the Oireachtas Health Committee and on the line. And a very good morning and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. As always, it appears as though this is a most serious situation with 50,000 patients said to be affected today, twice the amount that would have been the case last week week with respite and rehabilitation services affected because of the escalation in this dispute and it appears as though there's little sign of a resolution. Morning Michael, the position first of all I think it's important that we do recognise that nurses are extremely dedicated and committed to the work that they're at. I have members of my own family who are members of the nursing profession so I'm well aware of their commitment to their job. We have a, a situation at the moment for instance where you know, we've already gone through the Public Service Pay Commission in October, which recommended increases. For instance, you take a newly qualified staff nurse. As a result of that decision, uh, their salary will go from 29050 uh, to 36196 That's a 25% increase. Uh, it's an increase of 7141 A staff nurse uh, 0.6 on the scale their salary will increase by 6,973 from 36,383 up to 43,356. So the government saw this issue uh, going back a number of months ago. They went to the, uh, the, the Public uh, Service Pay Commission, dealt with a number of issues which were, were of concern both to nurses and to the government and to the HSE. And there was a 20 million package put in place to deal with that issue. In relation to uh, the demands that are now there, uh, I think it's important to understand where we're coming from. The INMO signed in to the uh, agreement, the the pay agreement, uh, which takes us to 2020, and that they signed into that knowing what they were signing into. We're now gone back, they're now moved away from that and have put in for further pay increases and they will be of a knock-on effect. And to give you an idea of the knock-on effect, if you take back in 2000, the public service pay bill was $8 billion. By 2008, it was $16.2 billion. And that's what the concern of the government. We're there, um, and it's not the government paying out the money, it's the taxpayers who pay at the end of the day. So we have to plan for this. 
I think there are very genuine concerns by mm-hmm. nurses. For instance, I've seen nurses, and, and just very simple issues like um, safety uh, for nurses. I've, I know, for instance, of three nurses who wrote in sick leave from one um, hospital because of being assaulted by patients. So there are issues like that. There are issues in relation to um, where there is a shortage in a particular area that have to be dealt with. But there's also an issue in relation to nurses. Say, for instance, you take a nurse who's returning home from the UK. In Ireland, we're on, if you go to 35,500, you're on the higher tax bracket of 50%. In the UK, you earn 46,500 sterling, which is equivalent to 50,000 euros, before you even go on to the high bracket of 40% tax. So people, when they come home from the UK, look at what's into their hand, and I think that's one of the issues that we're trying to deal with as well over the next three to four years, that the tax band where people go into the higher tax bracket will increase. And I think that's one of the issues that we have to deal with as well. Under the out- circumstances as you've outlined them to us uh, there this morning, do you believe it is legitimate for nurses to withdraw their labour? Well, every every person who's a member of a union and every person who's working in the state, there is that freedom. It's not a dictatorship. People are entitled to take industrial action. They have a very strong view on it. They have a very strong leadership uh, in their union. Um, they have obviously looked at this very carefully mm. and they believe that this is the best way forward. So you support the action that nurses are taking? No, I, 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 I'm not supporting the action. I'm saying that's the freedom that we have in this country where people can uh, take industrial action. I think we've got to work together to find a solution. Both ministers yesterday set out that we are prepared to go back to the table and deal with quite a number of issues that need to be dealt with. And I think it's also important, you know, that well, the number of nurses have increased in, this, in, the, in the medical ser- in services over well, the last five years. we're going nowhere. Ba- based on what you've just said and based on what the ministers said yesterday, we're going nowhere. Uh, because well, the nurses have said that's uh, an affront to uh, their I- I- integrity in taking this action and that it was a- an insult. Uh, both unions, uh, the INMO and the Psychiatric Nurses Association have said that pay has to be discussed. Well, we're saying at the moment the the current position that we have is that we're prepared to go back to the table. We're saying that there are a number of key issues that the nurses want to raise. We've already dealt with some of those over six months ago and we respond. Okay, but you've had you've had the response. Well, we can't, you know, the, we, we have over 290,000 public servants. Mm. Um, we have to look at the um, long-term planning in this country. We're facing into a major challenge over the next five to six weeks mm. in relation to Brexit. We don't know what the outcome of that is. There is no way that a government can give a commitment to the, tie, the scale that's being talked about. We're talking about 300 million. Well, it, and just on the cost of 300 mm. million. And I say to people, look, if we're talking about increasing uh, a, a new expenditure of 200 million, then the immediate response is, what service do you cut as a result? OK, so we well, that means to, you can't provide a health service. Well, it means you can't. Uh, you can't provide the, f- the level of funding that's being talked about um, on the scale that's but been for the people who are not involved in this dispute, uh, I mean, there's uh, the employees and the employer, the nurses and the government. Uh, but for the rest of us who pay taxes to have health services delivered to us, uh, we find ourselves without a service. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation today where 50,000 people will not be seen. They'll be impacted in one way or another. Thousands of people will not have operations carried out, uh, uh, including 
having cancer patients, as we've been hearing, very important surgeries uh, have been cancelled. Uh, we're talking about older people who won't be able to go into day hospitals or people with disabilities uh, who will uh, not uh, be able to go to respite or rehabilitation, as the case may be. This has gone beyond uh, something uh, where the airwaves are a place where two peop- two sides in a dispute can claim to be right or wrong, as the case may be. But this is to do with people who have no... Uh, that's more reason why the ministers have made it quite clear that they're prepared to meet with the nurses' unions. Maybe the, the nurses' unions at this stage are not prepared to go back to the mm. table on basis of what the ministers say, but... I think so the government can't no provide point. a health like, service. Like, I, Michael, mm. I come from a legal background, right? Yeah. Mm. I start negotiations on a case and we start at a way off for what we know the value of a case is. Uh, or if I'm defending, I'll start at a lower, uh, at, a, at a, a far lower level than what I, I know the case is worth. Likewise, in this matter, I can't come to a settlement unless I'm prepared to meet with the other side. Likewise, in this case, I'm saying the government ministers have set it up quite clearly. We're prepared to go to the table. Um, the, the, the nurses are saying they're not prepared to come to the table with what, by what the ministers have said. I'm saying there's nothing to be lost at this stage by both sides sitting down around the table, flagging the issues that can be dealt with and moving on from there. But the nurses say it's an issue of pay. You're not willing well, to negotiate they're, pay, they're so, also, but so you're not willing to come to the pay table. But it's not about we're not prepared to come to the pay table. We, the IMO signed into an agreement to 2020. They signed into that agreement. It's like you signing a contract with your employer mm. 12 months ago and then coming back to the table and saying, I'm not now happy with the contract I signed. I want a new contract, even though you might have signed it for a, a three So the wor- n- nurses are wrong then, are they? I'm not saying the nurses are wrong. I'm saying that there are issues that need to be dealt with. And in fairness to nurses... Are they breaking their side of the commitment? In fairness to nurses, there are genuine issues that they are raising and these need to be dealt with and the government is prepared to deal with those issues. No, we, the we, nurses we, want you to deal with pay and you've said you're not willing but, to deal with pay. The, also, the, the ministers, also, the, the minister there are said, issues that they want to deal with as well. The minister said that the government is keeping its side of uh, the agreement. Does that mean that nurses are breaking their side of the agreement? Nurses have issues which we are prepared to look at in the same way as we looked at them in October. We we came forward with an extra 20 million euros. um, And you take, for instance, the public service new entrants since 2010, over 60,000 new entrants, including 10,000 nurses, will get a pay increase of over 3,000 euros over the next two years. 60,000 people, that's costing 75 million, 29 million, I think, this year, and 46 million uh, next year. So we are planning very carefully. And the one thing we do not want to have is where we build up this huge public service pay bill that we cannot then afford, which exactly is what happened in 2008. How long can a, a government continue if it cannot provide a health service? But we are there providing a health service. Not we, today to 50,000 people. But it's a, it's a case where there is, there, there is that freedom where people are entitled to use the industrial um, dispute process. Um, they are on strike, and that's basically what they have decided to do. We want to resolve this issue. We're prepared to go to the table, and as I say, no movement can be made on this matter until both sides come to the table. Regardless of what saying, people are saying in the public mm. domain, it's time for people to sit around the table. We have a lot of people here. Remember, Michael, in this country, 
63,000 people a week go through outpatient. Well, where, where, that's where, level, where, that's where has the invitation to the nurses been to sit around the table to re-enter the, talks? The ministers have made... They, they made a statement yesterday. They issued a press release yesterday. They made a statement and they made it quite clear. There, there is a process there that we have used in the past in the same way as we've used the process for the pay increases that were sanctioned in October, November. Um, there is a process there. That process can be used and we are saying that it needs to be used by both sides, both the HSE, the government and the nursing unions. And we are prepared to do that. That we the Workplace saying, Relations Commission was available <laughs> to facilitate the nurses. If what? If the nurses went to the WRC and said, uh, well, we would like to talk uh, on the basis that the government has outlined in its press release, uh, which is nothing to do with our dispute because our dispute is overpay. But we, we're not going to go anywhere until we start talking. And if they go, there, there is what's being said in the public domain is something different. We need to approach this in a very careful manner. We're saying we can make progress on this matter if both sides come to the table. And we're saying that invitation is there to the nursing unions to come to the table. So there is scope to discuss pay? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a scope for dealing with a number of issues, key issues that nurses want to deal with, and we are prepared to deal with that. And remember, we have to plan for the next 12 months, two years, three years in relation to providing uh, medical care as well. We have huge demands. We have a growing elderly population. We must make provision for that as well. And also in relation to the numbers of nurses, the number of nurses has increased by over 3,800. In addition, the number of care assistants in the service has increased to over 5,000 from something like over 3,000. So we have made substantial increases. And you take the HSE at the moment, the total number of people working in the HSE at the moment is 135,000 people. Uh, that's 116,000 uh, whole-time equivalents. Um, the situation in relation to um, since December 2014, the number of people, additional people, whole-time equivalents uh, working in the HSE has increased by 13,000. And as I said previously, that's greater than the entire workforce of the Irish Army. So we've increased the number of people working in the HSE to provide the services that we require. There's a cost element to that. That's an extra 13,000 people that has increased in four years. That's the response the government has given to improving the health service and providing the level of care that's required. And I think it's interesting, there's a survey out uh, yesterday which shows that um, Irish women are living longer um, are the third highest in Europe yeah. for lifetime expectancy and men are the seventh highest. And that's as a direct result of the dedication and commitment of nurses and doctors who provide the healthcare to all of us here in this country. And I think we need to appreciate that as well. All right. Well, the INMO accuses the government of recycling broken promises and that the issues you've been talking about, which the government says it is willing to enter into negotiations, have already been agreed and agreed since 2017 and that this is not good faith negotiations. Well, you know, the INMO signed into the agreement in 2020. They they knew what they were signing into. They carefully analysed and, and worked that out. And just in relation to the turnover of nurses in this country, I think it's important as well. We have a 5% turnover of nurses per annum in this country. Yeah. In some places in the UK, it's 15% per annum. And there is... Um, there is um, 
uh, you know, uh, there are some places where there's extremely uh, difficult challenges in relation to getting nurses. And I think we need to look at that, how you deal with that as well. But we have a lot of work done over the last four years in trying to improve um, pay and trying to improve the number of people available uh, in the workplace and also in trying to pro- improve the services. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, nurses are on the picket line. It looks as though uh, there's uh, still no prospect of uh, grounds for re-entering talks uh, because uh, the two sides are so far apart at this stage. Well, I, I would say to both sides that it needs to sit down at the table, even if, uh, you know, it's like you're you're at 1% mm. and I want 100%, um, you know, you won't make any progress unless both sides sit down around the table. All right, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fine Gael, Senator Colin Burke, his party's spokesperson on health in the Shannon, is a member of the Oireachtas Health Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk again about uh, the discovery of ammunition and what is thought to be a mortar tube in Omeath over the weekend and how that is a stark reminder of our recent past according to Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock who's on the line with us. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, like a, a lot of public representatives uh, you've applauded the good work of of the Gardaí in terms of the intelligence that led to this discovery and indeed the discovery itself. But the finding is all the more worrying given the situation we're in now. Uh, I mean, when you think of Theresa May visiting Northern Ireland today and how security will undoubtedly be tight, uh, this is a very good reason to make sure that security is at the level that perhaps uh, it will be. Yeah, it's a very worrying development, Mike. I think the most important issue uh, for your listeners to be aware of is that the weapons discovered in Omeath were not rusted relics of the bygone era. Uh, They were ready for use and had a potential to do harm. And the bottom line on all of this is uh, we democratically supported uh, both the peace process, both North and South, and indeed uh, the Good Friday Agreement and... uh, I've said that this is a stark reminder to our listeners and the people in border communities and elsewhere uh, that there are dissidents uh, who want to undermine that process uh, for their own gain or reason, uh, which is not representative of of, um, certainly uh, the democratic opinion of the vast majority of people, uh, whether it's in the Loud constituency or elsewhere. Look, we have had an era of periods where you know, we're now talking about the so-called new IRA, we've had mm. the real IRA, we've had continuity IRA. And that's a dissidence in the context uh, that there are Republican paramilitaries uh, who are not uh, affiliated uh, with the groups that we would have been previously aware with. I'm sure they don't see themselves as dissidents. Well, many, many, of, them, many of them see themselves as uh, Oglignahern. Mm. There's only one Oglignahern in this country, and that's our army. And uh, as far as I'm concerned... The evidence is there, going back to 2015, that these dissidents, as you call them, uh, while they have gone to ground, they still exist. And uh, we, we hear a lot of talk about the committed to the peace process. Um, certainly, uh, that is far from the truth when you when you look at the activity that has not happened alone in Omeath, but indeed other activities and indeed more recent cases, uh, which are in today's newspaper in relation to charges, uh, in relation to a murder uh, in, in, in Midloud or, or indeed uh, yeah, Bad Bacon, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a number of years ago. So 
Look, I suppose uh, my reason for coming on your program this morning, indeed for issuing a statement, is to uh, ask people to be vigilant, uh, to be supportive of our Garda Shikana and indeed uh, our army, and ensuring that any suspicious activity that we observe um, is relayed to, to the authorities. Um, the Good Friday Agreement is fragility, the peace fragility is there, as you say, mm. uh, and... Um, I mean, we were talking about a handful of of people uh, who continued with uh, a a violent uh, way of making their view on the border knowing up until recently. It's hardly coincidental uh, that we're seeing discoveries of this sort or the bomb in Derry uh, last month, for that matter. And I gather that it's possible, if not probable, that Brexit and the idea of the return to a hard border could act as a, a recruiting mechanism for these groups. Absolutely. If you had asked me that six months ago, uh, I would have said, uh, Mike, that my, my judgment on it would be that, you know, uh, we would get into protest and uh, around Brexit and peaceful process and, uh, you know, to, to seriously draw attention to the fact that uh, there's a no-win situation for anybody in, 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 a, in a hard border or any return to the old border. But uh, I would have said back then, you you know, it would lead to illegal activity and, mm. you know, that... Uh, uh, Smuggling uh, or widespread mm-hmm. smuggling, mm-hmm. Uh, not, not the traditional type of smuggling, but people making money on the backs of others uh, in, in large amounts. But, you know, the more this goes on, when you see what has happened in Derry, uh, indeed, uh, again, supposed to be connected with the new IRA, um, it's it's deeply worrying that uh, my, my, my belief at this stage is, yes, there are those up there who would like to up the ante, uh, and certainly we'll see Brexit as an opportunity to do so, despite um, what some people in Britain would say, that say we're not returning to the borders of the past, we're mm. not returning to the troubles of the past. But there certainly uh, is a view that any form of infrastructure uh, would be open to some form of dismantling or attack, and uh, that in itself would uh, would prime others to, I think, uh, re-enter uh, the, the 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 dissident and act as a, a, a I suppose an opportunity for recruitment and I think we can't go back to that. Mm-hmm. Have you any feel for how many people are involved in uh, these paramilitary type organisations or uh, how capable or sophisticated they are? What level of weaponry they might have for that matter? I have absolutely uh, no 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 evidence. I'm quite sure the Garda Shikana have that. We had a, a report last year. Um, uh, by the PSNI and 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 and, and Gardashikana who looked at the whole issues around the activities of these people, you know certainly um, uh, they're probably in 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 the double handfuls uh, in Louth, uh, but certainly they have seem to have a network of people who are intent, uh, no matter how small they are, on causing uh, friction and bringing us back to the bad old days. Mm. Uh, and undoubtedly getting more sophisticated. Uh, the successful bombing in Derry will give them a boost in terms of their own capabilities or feeling that they are capable and indeed in terms of attracting people who may support their cause, as the case may be. And the weaponry uh, that we were hearing about uh, in uh, the coolies was worrying, wasn't it? I mean, the idea of mortar bombs, uh, again, uh, is beyond belief. 
Yeah, look at uh, most of your listeners, uh, Mike, out there, including myself, would uh, be Republicans in nature and, and nationalists and want to see United Ireland and all of that. But that's fine. Uh, this this type of activity or any attempt at it, it will lead to further division on an island that, that needs, as I keep saying, a unity of people, mm. a, a unity of purpose, and indeed a, 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 a unity in relation to delivering on these islands the opportunity for uh, future generations. Okay, so, 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 so given where we are with Brexit and uh, the odds on returning to a hard border, would you say it's 50-50 that we're looking at uh, return to, to uh, a violent campaign on this island? Uh, I, I, I would, would, would hope that uh, violence would not uh, erupt and I certainly uh, would, as you would, I'm sure, condemn mm. anybody who would be uh, intent on that. I, I've spoken on your programme many times in relation to Brexit. I'm, I firmly believe that we're in a situation where there's a Russian roulette being played by uh, the British uh, in relation to seeing who will blink first. Uh, I've said calm heads are needed. I think uh, the joint approach of the Houses of Iraq is in terms of standing together in all parties uh, around the backstop. Um, I've said many times in your programme, the buck stops at the backstop, no hunker sliding on it. Uh, the British entered, uh, created their problem. Mm. They have to solve this problem, and the only way it can be solved. And I'm delighted to see that Theresa May is coming to to, to the north today, because when she went into uh, Wales on her holidays back two and a half years ago and said that she had walked the border uh, of, of 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 Wales and decided to have a general election, at that time I said if she'd walked the borders of of uh, between north and south of this island, then she probably would have seen the need to make sure that, uh, that they stayed in the customs union uh, uh, and, and, and common market. Mm. And I'm optimistic that, that, that at the end of the day, some sense will prevail. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there's so much disunity uh, in politics in Britain and, and no voice uh, uh, from any assembly in the north. And it's left to politicians here in the south to try and uh, put forward uh, the case for uh, uh, the 32-county approach to the all-Ireland economy uh, and uh, hopefully sense will prevail, but I suppose your listeners will always say, does sense prevail in politics? Yeah, well, I suppose we leave them to answer that uh, and as to how anybody can make sense of this, well, uh, I'm not sure and only time will tell. Uh, let's talk uh, about uh, another local issue and another sinister issue and uh, a pipe bomb which was apparently thrown into a family garden in Drogheda uh, over the course of uh, the last couple of days. Gardy discovered this in uh, the sunny area of uh, Drogheda yesterday uh, and it's believed that it's probably part of this ongoing and simmering feud between criminal gangs in the town. Well, um, I'm reliably informed that in this case uh, Garda Shikona have ruled that out uh, that it, 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 it is part probably of uh, distant, activity, distant activity again oh. uh, and while, while obviously I'm sure the Garda Shikona will comment on that at a later stage uh, this suspicion is that it relates to other activities. Um, as you said, the device was found in the Sunnyside area of Drogheda, I think early, early hours of Monday morning, uh, and uh, it was a viable pipe bomb, uh, uh, and obviously I'm sure the Garda Shikana will report on, on, on uh, their belief as to who, who was involved in that activity. But, but your understanding is that it was dissidents who were responsible for this? Well, I'm told it certainly wasn't related to uh, the ongoing feud uh, 
in, in Drogheda, but I think that's a matter for Ngardashir Khanna to comment on. All right, but a worrying development in itself. Well, it, it speaks, Michael, volumes in terms of, we've just spoken about Derry, we've spoken about Omid, we're now speaking about Drogheda. Um, your listeners out there who I know believe in democracy and will, will decide that in the ballot box at any time whether it's local elections, European elections, uh, we need to be wary that there are people out there who would like to usurp uh, and undermine the authority of uh, the real Oglig Nahern, which is our Irish army and indeed our, our defence forces. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. Finnefall TD in Louth, Declan Braddock. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's hear a little bit more about uh, the survey to mark Safer Internet Day. Cyber Safe Ireland has found that four out of five 80-year-olds or about 80% of children who are aged eight have smart devices which are connected to the internet. Alex Cooney is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Cyber Safe Ireland. Good morning to you, Alex, and Good thanks for joining us. Are you surprised by this finding? Uh, I'm not, because obviously I'm, I'm seeing the data coming in all the time. We did uh, a big survey last year of uh, 8 to 13-year-olds but uh, and, and found similar findings. But what we wanted to do this time was focus on the younger cohort of kids, so the 8 to 10-year-olds. And I suppose what we wanted to highlight was that children are actively engaged online and that many of them have their own smart devices through which they can uh, connect to the Internet. Um, and that we need to be doing a whole lot more around the education side of it. All right, and that's 80% of the 1,200 children that you looked at. What else did you find? So we found that uh, just about half of them were on social media. So if you break that down, it was about uh, 50% of the 8- and 9-year-olds, but 60% of the 10-year-olds were on social media. And that's obviously um, also with the age restrictions that are on place on many of the apps and, uh, and games that they're, they're, they're playing and doing. Uh, so 13 would be the minimum age restriction on many of the uh, popular ones like Snapchat, 16 on some other popular ones. So the uh, TikTok, is a, is, which was known as Musical.ly before, also has an age rating of 16 and is very popular with this age group. Um, we also found that they are talking to strangers online, um, which is interesting for us because in the classroom, they often, you know, when you ask that question, you know, do you, mm. do you talk to, to people that you don't know online or should you talk to people that you don't know online? You know, they will inevitably say no no of course not but in terms of what they're actually doing online you know they are so we found that 15 percent of the children we're speaking to and that's 15 percent of eight-year-olds nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds are speaking to strangers every day uh, about 30 percent of them were at, uh, at least uh, every week you know so mm. they are talking to strangers through social media through games um, and this is something we also want to highlight because it's so important that um, the, the friends they have online are the friends that they have in real life as well. Which undoubtedly is not always uh, the case and uh, I I gather with some of uh, these forums you were talking about Snapchat and TikTok having uh, minimum age limits uh, for people to sign up but I I assume that you can put down uh, that you're 16 when you're actually 8. Absolutely. I mean, they do. They they will lie about their age. Mm. And some of these children are doing so with parental consent. This is not all kids kind of going behind the back of their parents. You know, there's fierce pressure on parents. And, and in some cases, parents are kind of giving in to that pressure rather than making informed decisions around when is the right time for my child to be allowed to go on social media. So what we wanted to highlight today was, was you know, that to, to really focus on parents of younger children, because that's an ideal opportunity to really plan out how you want this to go in your family, to think about, you know, when is the right time, how much time, what are the 
ground rules that we need to set mm. you know, before they get to the age where it's a lot more difficult to, to negotiate and where children will more naturally be looking for more privacy, more independence. Um, so we really want to encourage uh, parents of younger kids to avail of the good advice that is out there, the good resources um, that are available on, on our website, on other websites like Common Sense Media or webwise.ie. Uh, um, you know, there is plenty of good advice out there for parents uh, if they know where to find it. Um, and I think we also, you know, what we would call on the government to do is, is a national parents awareness campaign. You know, if you think of something like road safety, we've, we've given, been given enormous support over the years um, in terms of, of, of the Safe Cross Code. You know, there's lots of good regulations. There's lots of good awareness campaigns. Mm. And now we have good social norms around road safety. We need the same for online safety. And we need to equip parents uh, with, the no- with the knowledge um, to, to, to engage in their children's online lives effectively. But it, whilst it is dangerous, uh, the danger is a, a virtual danger. And therein lies uh, the complication and the problem with all of this, I think, Alex, because uh, whilst we might see children cross roads in a way that's dangerous and ask them to do otherwise, or hear the statistics of how many children have been knocked down on the roads, as the case may be, we don't know what's going on on the internet or where they're going on the internet or what's going on in their minds as a result. Well, this is why we would encourage uh, parents to to make sure that their children are on their devices in family spaces, so where you can keep an eye on them. I, we totally recognise it's not possible for parents to sort of you know, police it 24-7, but if you have clear ground rules around where they can use it, for mm-hmm. how long they can use it, um, whether or not you can check the device as a parent, uh, and these are all ground rules you can set when you're first handing over that device. You know, ensuring good parental controls are in place on that device. There's lots of things that we can be doing as parents and we don't need to be te- technical geniuses to, mm. to do it. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's just ensuring that you're not being shut out. As a parent, we're not being shut out of our children's online lives. And if they're it, in it, their bedrooms with the doors shut and the headsets on, mm. then we are effectively shut out. So I think we need to ensure that there's good conversations going on with our children. You know, I'm a parent mm. of, of young kids. I'm dealing with this at home as well as at work. But I think that the importance of that engagement, that co-use where we can, so sitting down, playing the games with them, you know, watching the YouTube videos with them, talking about what they're seeing, talking about what is and isn't okay. You know, all of these conversations are a really important way of preparing our kids for more independent use as they get older. And is it that parents are giving their children smartphones or that children are going out and buying smartphones with their communion money with unrestricted access to the internet? Uh, yes, certainly we're coming across children, uh, as well as you can see, as young as eight who would have their own smartphone, and that's often because they've used the communion money um, to, to, to get it, or they've been given one a device for Christmas. And it isn't just mm-hmm. smartphones. You know, obviously there's lots of other devices uh, that they can uh, through which they can access the internet. Um, so it, it's you know, and in some cases, yes, it is unrestricted. You know, uh, we're, we're we're hearing of, of children, plenty of kids who are using the devices in their bedrooms. You know, there's 10% of the kids that we surveyed uh, were online for more than four hours a day. Mm. Um, you know, and we can talk about the, the value of screen time and, the, and the, the downsides of screen time and all of those things and what is too much. But, you know, four hours is a lot of time for a child of eight, nine or ten to, to be online in one day. Uh, so there really does need to be a healthy balance um, in all of these things. Um, oh. 
Well, a lot of this doesn't come as a, a surprise to me. It's no, of no surprise to me that children want these phones or tablets or whatever it is, as the case may be, that they have them uh, or that uh, they have unrestricted access for unlimited amount of times. But what is surprising, I think, is the amount of children who have managed to get them. 80% of uh, eight-year-olds having one of these devices because they're very expensive. I mean, we hear of children who go to school without any food in their belly, but a, a smartphone in their pocket it seems yeah it is it's, it's it's difficult to understand i mean i think we we also have to acknowledge in this in this discussion that children love the technology they're really engaged in it you know when we go into the classroom and we talk to the kids they they really enjoy talking about what they do online and they you know they there's a lot of opportunity for learning and so you know socializing yeah. it's not all bad and in fact there's a, there's a strong argument to say that we should be preparing children for their future online lives you know they're going to be need need to be very familiar with technology as they get older and they, you know they're going to need these skills in their future jobs so the, as much, the, the best preparation we can do is 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 to be there with them and guide them along the way you know and what we want is parents making informed decisions so you know deciding when is the right time for my child to get that device not giving in to pressure because you know the child is coming home and saying every other kid in my no. class has one it's so unfair you know like which which is what a lot of parents are faced with you know it's 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 about talking to other parents you know reaching out to other parents in the class and saying look could we could we all agree that we're going to hold off till you know this time or, or that time you know but what think, are you talking about alex are you talking about six-year-olds because if 80 percent of eight-year-olds have them you're the odd one out if you don't yeah i mean look it's mm. i we can't say what the mm. ideal age is I, you know obviously six is is, is extremely young to, to own their own smart device um and and you know i would i'd certainly urge parents to, to really think that through before before they do get the device but equally it's it's around it's around the maturity of that child it's the readiness of that child it's also around your preparedness as a parent to to be involved and to take on that responsibility that you'll need to take on to guide them through this you know mm. we if we're going back to the road safety analogy we don't just you know send our six-year-olds off to to navigate the roads themselves we we guide them we give them the 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 rules of the road you know so we we need to do the same thing when a when a parent decides the right time is for their child to to have the device or to be on social media we need to be there to guide them and especially when they're this young so we've we've launched lots of resources today on our website so cybersafeisland.org for parents to help guide them through this because we know it's difficult it's really challenging um, and we want to support parents yeah, and I'm sure parents want to protect their children uh, and uh, will be looking for that uh, advice uh, and cybersafeireland.org, as you say, is uh, the website. We leave it there for the moment, Alex. Thank you indeed for joining us here this Thank morning. You. Alex Cooney, Chief Executive Officer of CyberSafe Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Seamus from Drogheda on the nurses' strike phoned in to say that he thinks they are overstepping the line by extending this to services that provide respite care and services for older people. He doesn't think that the strike should be hitting uh, them. He thinks whoever is setting the agenda is walking on dangerous ground. Okay, well, the agenda sees many more days of strength action uh, again on Thursday. The action today, which is impacting on 50,000 people, that's compared to 25,000 last week, uh, another 50,000 on Thursday, three days next week, and two days then the following week. 
Gronje from Drogheda says whatever about the pay, the government should be addressing the conditions and the staffing levels in hospitals. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to see that the nurses are under unacceptable pressures at times and can't even take breaks because of the demands. They need more bodies to ensure that patients get the care that they need and deserve, says Gronje. All right, well, uh, that's what the nurses say this dispute is all about and in order to solve it, uh, they need a pay increase. Mary texts to say perhaps the HSE should look at the excess in clerical staff walking around hospitals with folders in their arms and all others sitting in offices. Mm. Well, a lot of people would say that, but a lot of the work they do is crucial at the same time. Kathleen from Kells, there needs to be a coming together of both sides to sort this out, Michael. The nurses seem determined that they are going to see this through. So what will that mean? Will it be just more strikes and more strikes? At the end of the day, it is the patients who will suffer. The government has the responsibility on this and they should not let it drag on and on because a resolution is going to have to be got at some stage. Yeah, well, that's uh, always the case, isn't it? And somehow uh, the most intractable of the disputes are resolved. Somehow somebody would have to give uh, uh, quite significantly, it would seem, in this dispute. No Minister for Health in the last two decades, according to Martin, has been really able to get to grips with what needs to be done to make our health service fit for purpose. There is so much that needs overhauling and in my view, the HSE seems to be a law on to themselves, answerable to nobody. Mm. Mary and Trim thinks that the nurses' strike is not on, that it's patients who are affected and she feels that they need to get around the table pronto and talk. They won't solve the dispute out on the picket lines. All right, well, the uh, government has said it's willing to re-enter talks on many issues, uh, but pay not being one of them. Uh, the nurses have said that's a- an insult to its members who are on the picket lines today. And, of course, uh, we'll be hearing more about uh, the impact of uh, the overtime ban by psychiatric nurse- nurses. Uh, that's to escalate tomorrow. There's a ban in place, a nighttime ban in place today, but it'll be a 24-hour ban tomorrow, and that should have a, a significant impact. And uh, this looks set to go from bad to worse before there is that resolution if there is to be a resolution. Uh, let's uh, move uh, to other issues now and uh, we're joined by Fine Gael Councillor in County Meath Noel French uh, who's been asking uh, uh, questions of uh, the County Council A uh, very good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, I take it that you're not too surprised at the amount of fines that have been issued for dog fouling? No, Michael, I'm not. Uh, um, I'm not, and I'm still disappointed. Each uh, year around this time of the year, I ask the council how many dog fouling fines have been issued and how many have been paid. Uh, When I got elected in 2014, there were no fines for dog fouling and no fines for dog fouling the year before that. Gradually, they've built up. This year, it's the most ever. Nine, can you imagine that? Nine dog falling fines issued and three of them paid. But that said, Meath County Council is in the top 50% because 50% of the county councils issue no dog falling fines. Oh, okay. Right, okay. Uh, And uh, why or how is it that six of the nine people who were fined didn't pay the fines? There's a difficulty. Uh, I know Loud County Council had difficulty getting witnesses to go attend uh, court cases 
And uh, that is one of the big problems uh, that Meath County Council have as well with regard to uh, taking legal proceedings and then people uh, people claim inability to pay as well. All right, and we're going to be talking about uh, littering and uh, illegal dumping a little bit later on in the programme. Uh, you've also been asking uh, about uh, the number of fines issued and the number of fines paid in County Meath. Yes, yes. Now, I know litter and, and, uh, and dumping has raised its head hugely uh, over the last year, uh, particularly with regard to fires and things like that. We had fray and bog and so on, and we, people do think litter contributed uh, to some of those uh, bog fires. Our fines are actually down by 50%. The fines issued are mm-hmm. down to a half of what they were in 2016 and 2015. And the amount paid again there is about one third of them actually. Last year we had 57 uh, fines uh, actually paid out of 158 issued. Over 300 fines in 15 and 16, 158 fines issued last year, last year. and 57 of those paid. paid. Uh, nine yeah. dog fouling fines issued last year, three paid. Yeah. Uh, it, it would seem as though if you're intent on littering or allowing your dog to do whatever it will, uh, that there's little consequence for it. It would, it would, it would. And, and at the same time, the council spends a phenomenal amount of money, 1.6 million on anti-littering uh, um, campaigns and, and trying to stop people to litter. We really have to get the stick out. And, and it is a very small minority of people. It's one or two percent of, of people that create the, the litter mm. that uh, allow the dog fouling. You know, dog fouling, People say, you know, it's there on the on the pavement. But if you go over that in a wheelchair mm. or a kiddie's buggy, how disgusting is that? Yeah. And I see 20 Tidy Town volunteers out here every Saturday and Sunday morning going around picking up litter. How much of a waste of time and energy is that for them? Every week, Saturday and Sunday morning, mm. they go out. Imagine if they didn't have to pick up that litter. What could they do? And imagine if you had uh, somebody take their dog for a walk on the same street every day and didn't pick up after the dog, how much the dog would leave behind by the end of a week. Absolutely, and, and the disgusting... And it just takes one dog, well, though, that's that the point. It's a health hazard, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. so... Yep. All right, no, listen, thanks uh, for uh, that not-too-surprising news this morning. Disappointing, though, as you say, uh, but not-too-surprising, unfortunately. That's Fine Gael Councillor Noel French. Now, let's go back to some more of your calls. Marie, what else have you got for us? Yes, a text from Raymond on Brexit. So the British Prime Minister is to visit the north of Ireland today to try to save her Brexit withdrawal agreement and her political career. Maybe if some of the Sinn Féin reps are talking to her, they could ask her if there's any chance she could give us back our six counties in the north that is rightfully belo- that rightfully belongs to the island of Ireland. Okay. If she did that, then she might have less sleepless nights, and a Brexit withdrawal agreement would be nothing to do with the island of Ireland. It's a no-brainer. Okay. Says Raymond. All right. Well, uh, the Prime Minister has uh, suggested uh, that uh, uh, no deal Brexit could result in a reunited Ireland. Sean was listening into your interview with Deputy Declan Bartnock and says that talk for United Ireland is the last thing we need at this stage. What must take priority over anything else is that we ensure that there's no hard border or God help us all, say mm, Sean. Okay. 
Eamon was in touch to say that the government wasn't behind the door giving themselves a €5,000 rise each. They give the pensioners a rise, but they have to wait till March for it. Mm. Theresa would like to ask, is it necessary for so many of our ministers to go abroad to all these faraway countries on St. Patrick's Day? Wouldn't it be better to give this money as extra pay to our nurses? No, I don't know. I mean, uh, I was that bad. I'm just wondering, I was wondering why uh, the call came in about uh, the delayed pension increases it's to do with the nurses' dispute, is it? Yes. Yeah, the St. Patrick's Day uh, trips, uh, I'm sure, are good value for money. Uh, that uh, the opportunity that uh, this country enjoys as a result of uh, getting that warm welcome right across the world is one that many would envy. Martin wants to congratulate you, Michael. He oh. says he was very impressed with the way you handled. Fianna Falls uh, Deputy Brazel yesterday on the show in relation to the nurses debate. He says there are other organisations who work hard and receive no wage increase. They're not on their own. Okay. Charlie from Navin phoned in with what he termed as his yearly gripe. He said he rings every year when he sees no change and that's to the way people in- use their indicators on cars or not mm. use their indicators. He says that he was uh, he just did a little bit of it, his own survey there recently what when is he, was he talking about his dog but people don't indicate to turn right or left what's an indicator <laughs> but he says he stood outside the sports <laughs> centre in Navin mm. and he watched uh, 10 cars that went in and not one indicated that they were going to turn right into mm. the sports centre and each of them so will tell you they're all wonderful drivers as well I'm sure Another listener, mm. Jackie, contacted us uh, in recent days about an incident that happened to his wife with a young grandchild on the Terminal Feckin Road, just on the outskirts of Drada. It says that his wife was crossing the road at around 8.40am, Michael, and pressed mm. the button on the pedestrian lights. The light went green to cross and luckily they didn't step out straight away because a car driving at speed drove straight through the red light. He said they were so lucky. And just wonders what our motorists thinking about that this is near a school and it could have been very serious if there had been other children, you know, crossing the road that didn't Mm -hmm. wait maybe a couple of seconds before they stepped out. So -hmm. just wanted to make that point. We also have a listener. Please, please, could you tell your listeners to get their children high-vis jackets for when they're all getting off school buses? We nearly collided with a young girl the other evening. Couldn't see her with the dark school clothes crossing the road. Surely it should be illegal not to have reflective clothing. It's so, so dangerous and the heartache it could save. Okay. So we'll finish on that one, Michael. All right, thanks uh, for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you and our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. The Minister for Health is coming under increasing pressure because of uh, the nurses' strike and also because of the escalating increase in uh, the cost of uh, the children's hospital. The Minister will be taking questions in the Dáil later this afternoon on both of uh, these issues. And let's uh, talk uh, to Independent for Change TD in Dublin South Central, Joan Collins. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what do you hope to hear from the Minister in relation to the cost of uh, the hospital? Uh, the Minister says he wasn't uh, aware of uh, this increase of around £500 million until the 9th of November, uh, but it, it could have been known last August by all accounts. That appears to be the case. Um, this, the situation seems to change daily or even hourly about who knew what, when and how. Um, 
the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it is an absolute shambles and the book does stop with the minister at the end of the day. And um, there was department uh, officials on the board and the national um, uh, the national hospital board, the paediatric hospital development board. And um, he was there on the board, supposed to be a watchful eye over what was going on um, and saw the escalating costs last year over the four month period. Um, and, you know, it's... It, it, it just in my mind, I'm talking to people in the, on the street and in my constituency, they are absolutely in awe of the fact mm-hmm. that a project could go from 600 million to 1.7 billion and potentially up to 2 billion. Um, it, it's just not on. You, you wouldn't let it happen in your own home. Mm-hmm. You know, you get your architect in, get your plans organised, get, get in contact with builders, get a price, get a time date. And I know this is a big, po- a complex project, but the same terms should apply in relation to that as well. And my knowledge was, was that BAM got this tender and they tendered 20% less than all other tenders. And it just seems to have ratcheted up over the last number of years from that point. Um, and it has to stop. It really has to stop. And I I had um, uh, uh, information from the national, uh, when the roads were being built and the big projects on, on the major roads and the, on the national roads. And um at a point in time, the same practice was being implemented where, they, where um, builders got contracts and then they ratcheted up the price they went along um, until there's a change in policy on the um, National Road Authority, but they said, you know, that's the price, get it done, and you're not going to get any more money. And at that point, builders were actually finishing projects earlier than projected because they wanted to get on to the next job. And there's, there's something fundamentally wrong mm. in relation to this project and I actually support the children's hospital in, in our area um, and you know support the fact that it was getting built linked in with the board talked to the nurses and the board and all that and it really is a huge letdown that this is actually happening now it's, 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 right. yeah. If the final bill comes in at 2 billion is there any way of justifying uh, that in your mind? I don't think so I think that this review uh, while this review is happening we haven't even seen the terms of reference yet They've changed over the last few days with pressure. Um, that we should really halt what's going on on the on the site and see what comes from the review. Look to see can we retender um, with you know proper uh, monies, plans, etc., and and move move it on from there because uh, you know people are looking and saying potentially two billion, one point seven billion at the moment, and nurses can't even be paid. You know, even the 300,000 that Pascal Dunhill has given on the 12% mm. pay increase. And, you know, we hear the same man, Pascal Dunhill, saying that he's, he's prudent with the economy and this sort of thing's happen under his watch. <laughs> it's just... So you believe the Minister uh, Minister for Health, Simon Harris, uh, in other words, made the wrong decision. He said he had three options, uh, and that was uh, to pause the project, to retender it, or to proceed, and he chose the option of proceeding. You believe uh, that he, he should have paused should have it? should have paused, yeah. Mm. I believe he should have paused, because I think until builders see that the government is serious about how they approach these projects, it just looks like it's a cash cow for some for some of the builders that get the, con- the contracts. And we have to see the details of where all the increases came about. Um, and hopefully that review will, will deliver that. We don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I think we should have paused um, and, and retendered. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, the final uh, 
objective is to have a world-class children's hospital with a, a co-located uh, maternity hospital mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's uncertain as to whether uh, the plan will transpire as was originally envisaged. Yeah, it's raised huge question marks about the, Na- the National Maternity Hospital. It's raised huge question marks about other primary care centres that are supposed to be on the, on the pipeline. For example, in our own area, there's one that was due to be built by, since 2016 in Drimna and that has been put off. Um, and we're just concerned, hugely concerned that it's going to be put off even longer. Um, so it does put huge pressure on other areas of our health service um, and it, it's... Yeah, we, we're in a serious situation here, I think. Mm. Uh, but uh, it would appear that uh, there may be no going back at this stage and we may be writing blank checks. We can't We can't do that. I think there'd be uproar. Um, and I, no, people, I don't think, will accept that. Um, and certainly people like myself, TDs, and, and our position would not accept that. We can't be writing blank checks. It's just mm. not on. We have to have, as I said, like the NRA did, that's the money do the job in the time frame and that's it. You know, yeah. you're not going to get cost overruns. So, so, it, so, so, so then what? Uh, I mean, what in, in terms of uh, National Children's Hospital? Uh, because this is something that uh, has eluded government after government. Uh, it goes back uh, to the 1990s, doesn't it, when this was first spoken about? The Children's Hospital? Mm. Yeah, and it goes back a long, long time and we've had debacle after debacle um, in relation to the matter sites mm. um, other sites around the, the city and that's why I was so confident that when there was an agreement of the site in, in James Hospital um, that things were going to be moving on now that hasn't happened Some in somewhere somehow there's been ratcheting up of costs when it was agreed that nine, it was going to cost 980 million that included a lot of aspects of the, of the construction Um uh, on, on it included, you know, even above and beyond the actual bricks and mortar, included all the things that were needed within the hospital as well. I have a question there. I was looking at that pair daily put back in 2017, and the minister listed all the things that the tender went out for for the 983 million. Um, and even with three to six percent, you know, costs going up, inflation, and that. We should not be looking at 1.73 billion now. It's just it just doesn't make sense. Are we ever going to find out why it happened? I, I would hope so. Um, now, PwC are doing this um, review at a cost of 450,000 euro. Um, a lot depends on the terms of reference, exactly what they've been told to look into. Um, PwC have done consulting costs for BAM, the developer that's on site. They've done other consultations for other companies. So if the terms of reference are, are robust um, and we have to see them, um, well, then I would hope that we'd find out exactly what's happened. All right. Uh, the minister said uh, that the report would not sanction individuals, but it would go as far as possible in identifying weaknesses uh, and then it would be up to the government to, to take action. Uh, but there's questions over as to whether that's legally permissible. Yeah, they're all the questions that we have to look at now. Um, I, you know, I, over the weekend, we've seen um, the Taoiseach change its position. First of all, the terms of reference are supposed to have. There's been no pointing the finger at anybody. Um, that changed on, on Sunday afternoon. Um, the teacher came in and said they will be um, pointed if there, if there is 
uh, individuals, they will be named and shamed as such. Um, mm. And it's a question about how you deal with that then. But that implies wrongdoing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it certainly does. Mm. If, if they find something there um, that was remiss um, of any individual or group of people. But what's the threshold? Uh, I mean, uh, there is uh, reputational damage uh, involved in all of this and that has uh, very serious legal consequences. It could have, Michael, yeah, it could have. Um, that's why I was saying that uh, the point I made, that the whole situation seemed to be a shambles. Um, and at the end of the day, what we the people want is a, is the most professional children's hospital mm. that we need for our children that we need and we actually need that hospital and we need it built. But isn't um, it quite hospital that or possible <laughs> quite possible that this hospital will proceed as uh, it, it, not planned but uh, uh, in the way that uh, it's turned out to be on the side of St. James's uh, at a cost of two billion uh, that nobody will be held uh, accountable for the uh, escalating costs. Um, I hope that's not going to be the case and I hope that the review actually brings to the fore where these costs are coming from, how they're being you know, put forward, who's getting them, uh, uh, who, who's you know, mm. making decisions to actually go ahead and rubber stamp them, uh, all that type of thing. We have to know all along the line and it's going to be a very, very detailed report, I hope. Um, I don't want it to go on there for the next year, neither. It's supposed to be done, with, you know, the terms of supposed to set up. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be, the review is supposed to be done within a period of time of two months or three months, I think it is. Um, but, yeah, we, there'll be enough people watching this very, very closely to ensure that there is a accountability um, and there is a mis, you know, anything that went wrong, deliberately, or, or, you know, you'd have to say, um, then they'd be taken to task and they have to be taken to task and there has to be a response from the government that says, we cannot accept setting up tenders for a certain amount of money in a certain time and then for that to be unravelled over a year or two down the road when the actual construction has taken place. Do you believe that the hospital will eventually be built? Yes, yes. Uh, but delayed? Possibly, possibly delayed. Um, and very expensive, shame, if not quite as expensive as it is now. And, and I, you know, I, I would hold responsible, you know, the... the well, I, that's why I have to question, I have to maybe revise mm. what I was going to say there. But um, the people that are involved with the construction of this site, they tended for a certain amount, 900 million. And how, how in the name of whatever, are we looking at 1.7 billion now, possibly 2 billion? There's something fundamentally flawed and wrong in what's happened over the last couple of years. Mm. Incidentally, are there questions over uh, the idea of having individual rooms for each patient, for each child who's a, a patient in the hospital? That was always in the plans, Michael. Mm. Is, it a good, is, it, is it a good plan? Because they did the same uh, in St. James's in uh, the Mercier's Institute, the Mesa building there, which uh, mm. provides mm. Uh, some of the best care in the world for older people. But a, a lot of the older people who are in the care of uh, the Mercier's Institute uh, complain that they've no stimulation. They're bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think that with the Children's Hospital, this idea was to have the individual rooms and then have a lot of play area and open mm. space and where people can interact and all that. But you have to take on board, like, um, people that have CF, sufferers that mm. have to be isolated. Um, 
disease control. But should there not be a variety of rooms, uh, single rooms for those uh, who they benefit most uh, and for those who would benefit from some stimulation and company uh, to be in a room with two or three? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not a medical professional. I don't know mm. how the, the, sort of the recommendations come in relation to this, but it was certainly a recommendation that all the rooms should be single. Oh, we know, um, but there were recommendations for the, and, and, for, and, and for, for, for older care. Uh, and, and it's been, been planned accordingly um, mm. from that point of view. And, and the building itself, if you look at the plans, does have that interaction, does have that... Mm. The, the windows, the aspects, all that type of thing was all taken on board. The colour, everything it was taken on board mm-hmm. to have an interaction with children um, in the hospital. Um, and and, and it was a, to me, it looked like a really good plan. Um, so. Okay. All right. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sure we'll be hearing more uh, when the Minister fields some questions in the Dáil this afternoon. Uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing questions about uh, the cost of uh, the Children's Hospital. But thank you indeed, as I say, for joining us today. Independence for Change TD for Dublin South Central, Joan Collins. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as, now, I, as I mentioned, mentioned earlier on to Noel French, uh, we're going to talk a, a little bit about uh, illegal dumping and fly tipping now because uh, a nationwide offensive has uh, been launched uh, which will hopefully clamp down on this type of activity if uh, people are illegally dumping of the rubbish uh, and it would seem uh, by all accounts that that is uh, the case in fact we see it all the time but it would also uh, appear that many people have no formal way of having their waste collected some 80,000 households in this country have not got a contract with a bin company and as a result of that uh, a new TV licence scheme is going to be brought into effect with what they call an intelligence gathering system where the bin companies will pass on air codes to the authorities of the customers that they have on their database that will allow the authorities uh, to discover who does not have a contract with a bin company and then they'll be asked to explain how they do in fact dispose of their waste. If they can't do that, they face a €75 fixed penalty notice and they'll have 21 days to pay or uh, face a prosecution. Uh, There's the prospect then of being brought to court and being fined up to €2,500. Repeat offenders could be fined €500 for every day of uh, the continued breach after a conviction. That's a a lot of people who will be looked at uh, and face that type of penalty, 80,000 households, as I say, hard to believe, but it's an issue that has been raised previously by the trade union SIPTU, as Brendan O'Brien, sector organiser in public administration, has been telling me. Yes, Michael, um, as you know, um, um, for some time uh, we've been calling for uh, the, the remunicipalisation of, uh, of waste services. Um, and I suppose the, the report that was uh, uh, issued yesterday calling for inspectors to be brought in to deal with the issue uh, of, of the 20% of people who don't have uh, bin coverage, um, from, from our point of view, we believe that's the wrong approach. I think if you look over the last 20 years, uh, since the bin services, that, which were previously done by the local authorities, were privatised, I think you know the, the evidence, I think, speaks for itself um, for the call uh, for uh, the state to re-enter uh, the provision of bin services. Uh, as, as you know, at the moment, uh, we have a situation where 20% of people in the country have no bin service at all. Uh, we all see uh, the level of, of service that we now get. Most people pay mm. between five, 600 quid uh, a year. Um, and for that, 
I don't think anyone could say they have a better service than than the, than the one that was previously provided by the local authorities. And indeed, um, you know, if you look at the quality of the service, frequently what we're looking at is uh, multiple providers, um, private service providers, um, uh, collecting bins at all hours uh, of, of the of the evening in, in housing estates and all the rest of it. So there are various health and safety implications with that. So what SIPs are calling for is that, look, uh, the, the correct approach here would be to do what many uh, European cities across Europe um, have done, which is to step in and re-enter uh, the provision of uh, providing uh, uh, bin services to the public. And we think that's the correct approach. And it's and it's not something new. Mm. It's, it's something that has been done across Europe. And, and, we, and we believe that that's the correct approach. At but this the, point but, but that figure uh, of 80,000 households not having uh, a formal agreement in terms of having their waste collected, that tallies with your estimate, does it? It does, yeah. yeah. And I think uh, it's, not, uh, it's not without coincidence um, that that has happened, um, you know, uh, during the time uh, that the service was privatised. If, if you cast your mm. mind back uh, prior to the privatisation of the service, everybody had a bin service, or virtually everybody had a bin service. And what's happened now is you have private, uh, private operators uh, effectively operating a private cartel or monopoly, whichever term is, is you care to choose, um, and cherry-picking. Uh, the service to the public to, to, to maximise their profits. And if you look at the, the, the evidence across Europe, uh, you know, that there are huge profits being made by private operators um, involved in waste services. But clearly, uh, the service to the public um, has deteriorated over that time. And, and that's why we're now calling for uh, a fresh approach mm-hmm. by the state to, to the bin services. And uh, what we're calling for is an end to side-by-side uh, tendering. What happens at the moment is that uh, the local authorities um, uh, allow multiple tenders for the same routes, and you know, mm. and, and we believe that's the wrong approach. What we're saying is that there should be uh, you tender for the route, so that one provider uh, would would operate one route. And what that would but do, that would that be would that would that would create a, a monopoly. The idea is to create competition to bring down costs, isn't it? Well, actually, well, if you look at what we have at the moment, we have what's what's called side by side tendering. So, mm. in any route, you have maybe three or four providers, private providers. Uh, that doesn't bring down the cost to the public because the, those people are paying maybe five, six, more, uh, hundred euros a year. Uh, what we're saying is what should happen is that there should be a cost-efficient uh, model uh, introduced by the state. And then that what, what should happen is that there will be, uh, you tend to further market, uh, you know, for the particular route. And that's what happens across Europe. And actually what that does is um, that has the effect of improving the service to the public as well as driving down costs. And what we're actually advocating in SIP2 is that um, for the state to, to re-enter the market, uh, we would support and engage with the employers uh, to, to introduce uh, a publicly provided cost-efficient mm. service. All right. And what do you think uh, the 80,000 households do with their waste uh, if uh, a bin company doesn't collect it from their doorstep? Well, look, I mean, there's, there's probably a combination of things happen. You know, some people might share bins, uh, other people might use civic amenities and so mm. on. And other people may well, uh, you know, use unauthorised uh, collection methods or, or, or dumping and so on. There's probably a combination of all of mm. those things. But I think the important figure in all of that is that since the service was privatised and opened up to, to, to unfettered competition, the cost to the public has gone up uh, in, the, in the order of hundreds of euros per annum. Uh, and the service to the public, to, to the public has, has diminished and the cost to the state. And if you look at mm. 
you know, um, Ireland's record, you know, in terms of the, the, the requirements under the EU to, to, to meet environmental standards. Ireland is the bottom of the list. Mm. You know, we're probably looking at uh, Ireland paying, you know, millions in fines for failing to, to achieve the, the environmental um, targets. Uh, you know, and you can't ignore the fact that, that, that uh, Ireland uh, has, has got into this position uh, over the same time that they advocate the privatisation of the market. So I think it's time for a fresh uh, fresh approach to the provision of the bin service. We and, believe but what I'm looking forward. at the moment is a photograph of uh, illegally dumped rubbish in a, a local newspaper and uh, I'm looking at similar photos uh, in local papers every single week and I uh, assume that whilst some people are sharing bins or using civic amenities as uh, the case may be, some people are dumping their rubbish uh, and illegally so, which results in the rest of us having to pay for it to be collected. Uh, But do you think that that kind of practice would stop if this system was introduced, this TV licence approach uh, where you have to have a contract with uh, a bin company or explain or prove for that matter uh, how you're having your waste dealt with otherwise? I don't think so. And I think if you look across uh, Europe, you know, where uh, there, there are a number of years ahead of us in, 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 in this, on this issue, that, that type of approach hasn't worked. Um, all you do is you, you drive illegal dumping further underground. It doesn't actually address the issue because, um, you know, the, the, mm. the private uh, operators for the last 20 years have had, you know, unfettered access to these mm. people. They've chosen not to do it because it, it may not be cost. Okay, but that is the objective of this approach and put the same question a a different way or to turn it on its head. If you were to return the provision of service to local authorities and take it away from the private companies, uh, would it result in people disposing of their waste appropriately and having uh, the bin man collected from their doorstep? I think think if the state were to step in again, yes, is the answer to that question. Why? Uh, Because if if you look at um, previously... One of the things that that the, the that, 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 that the public lost with the private estate was was, for example, waivers for people you know maybe on, on low incomes and so on uh, that maybe can't afford five or six or seven hundred or more euros per annum. Mm. You know that's that's uh, something that the, as soon as the, the private operators got their hands on the service, they dispense with waivers. You know, mm. um, so one, that's one of the things that the state could do. Uh, the other thing, again, in terms of of, of savings to the state, you know. Um, there's all of the hidden costs, you know. So since the service was privatised, you know, um, by and large, and uh, the, the workers in those companies are generally um, on on lower uh, terms and conditions of employment than than what have previously been the case in the local authorities. There are a few exceptions, but by and large, they're lower. Um, so you have hidden costs to the state in the form of income support supplements going to to these workers. So in in a way, uh, the state is effectively subsidising. Uh, you know, are partially subsidising the privatised service, you know, with these, mm. these types of hidden costs. And then, as I said earlier on, you have the, the penalties and fines uh, being incurred by the state in terms of having to deal with illegal dumping and so on. So when you stack it all up, uh, there's a compelling case to be made uh, for the state to address this issue by reintroducing the market, in, 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 in stepping into the market again, and not by uh, pursuing people knocking on their doors and chasing them down, uh, looking for them to, to sign up to, to being companies, uh, privatised companies that don't want them. And do you think that that's the upshot of it? Because uh, there's a lot of people who deal with their waste and do so uh, appropriately. I've thought of getting rid of the bin company myself because we'd only put our black bin out, let's say, two or three times a year. Uh, But uh, it would be easy enough uh, to deal with those uh, few bins uh, should we decide to do that. Uh, But in this circumstance, undoubtedly it's in the interest of the bin companies to get everybody to sign up with them and they will be happy enough to provide the information uh, to the authorities of who they have 
have as contracted customers uh, so that they can identify those who don't have a, a contract. Uh, but are there data protection questions about that? And is there uh, also questions about implementing the sanctions? They're talking about a €75 Euro, uh, fixed penalty fine uh, with a certain amount of time, three weeks to pay and that sort of thing where you can end up in court. But uh, the onus would be on the state to prove uh, that you're illegally dumping, dumping wouldn't yeah. it? Well, if you think about just the way you've described that, Michael, um, so instead of actually sort of putting forward practical solutions to provide a bin service to people, we're now going to spend, or the, the state is now advocating, we're going to spend thousands, if not millions, in legal costs, uh, pursuing people, uh, or checking up on people, and uh, to, to see whether or not they, they, they have um, a bin provider. And when you think of how much money is, 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 is potentially going to be spent on that, rather than dealing with actually you know, putting the, the, the money back into the delivery of some provision of services, you know. So mm. it, it seems to be a very bizarre way of trying to address an issue where, which has a simple solution, which is to reconfigure the market, uh, to end side-by-side tendering. Uh, that would allow the state to, to become a bidder, uh, to re-enter the market. And, and as I've said before, we've, we've, uh, we've said that we, to the state, that we're prepared, prepared to do, uh, to negotiate a cost-efficient model that would make the state the cheapest provider to the public, and that would give everyone a bin service back. And how much cheaper in uh, terms of what we pay now, uh, percentage-wise, how much cheaper? Well, what we would do, um, and what we're advocating, is that, uh, is that we would we would um, introduce, you know, uh, a cost-effective in terms of the provision of labour. There are certain static costs in terms of the provision of the equipment. Mm. Um, where, where, where we make the biggest savings, we would do it for cost price, whereas the private operators... Uh, want to want to build in a profit and do build in a substantial profit into that. That wouldn't have to be factored in uh, to the model that that could be provided. By so the you're state. not saying that staff would be paid less? They don't have to be paid less. No, because what if you understand that how the bin market operates? Uh, they, you know, the, the, they're orientated towards uh, generating the maximum profit. Yeah. Um, the state doesn't have to do that. All we have to do is provide it at, at, at cost uh, level, and that's what we would be prepared to. Uh, to negotiate with the with the state, so we're we're willing and, and, and open uh, to, to to delivering that. Uh, what we need now is the political will uh, to do that. Brendan O'Brien, SIP2 sector organizer in the public administration division, speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Sharon White of RD Station joins us for the report this week. And we begin in Ashburn, a fire that occurred at a local business in an industrial unit. That's right. Good morning, Michael. Uh, Garda in Ashburn, we're investigating the circumstances about around a fire that occurred in Coolfor, which is part of the Ashburn Garda district. The fire occurred in the industrial premises on the evening of Thursday the 31st of January. That was last Thursday evening. The fire was noticed about 8.15pm and the fire brigade were called to the scene but there was a huge amount of damage was caused to this premises. The investigation team have a number of leads uh, that they are pursuing as the premises is located just off the N2. We're asking if passerby passers-by on the evening of last Thursday may have seen anything suspicious we ask that they contact Ashburn Garda Station with the information. Alright and we'll go to a different part of uh, the N2, we're on the Louth-Monaghan border where a trailer was stolen. 
That's right. Uh, at the other end of the N2 in the early hours of last Tuesday morning, that's this day last week, a car transporter was parked just at the back of a house uh, just off the N2. And when the owner got up on Tuesday morning, the trailer attached to the car transporter had been taken. And for anyone who knows about car transporters, the, uh, this trailer was a tilt bed trailer. Uh, there was easy access from the house onto the N2. So perhaps if you were travelling on the N2 on the Louth-Monaghan border last Tuesday morning, did you see a large trailer being towed? Or maybe you're in the car industry and you'd been offered a trailer similar to this one uh, for sale in the last week. If you have been contacted, please uh, ring us at RD Garda Station with any information you have. All right. Uh, we go to Dundalk, uh, a somewhat unusual story from the museum, I think. That's right. Uh, a couple of locals were enjoying the town's local history in Dundalk, actually, this week. Having entered the museum at Clark Railway Station last Monday night, two men can be seen on CCTV camera removing two lovely bottles of harp from a display stand. However, as the bottles were both 25 years old, we would hope that the men are not feeling too under the weather after having drink, drank this vintage bottle of harp. OK, right. I'm sure uh, people will uh, rue the day that they did uh, and uh, will be sad that they've gone. Uh, but I'm Absolutely. sure the men will testify that uh, you should drink uh, in somewhere other than a museum in future. Uh, we go to Navin next uh, and uh, some damage to cars. Uh, indeed, uh, some upset to some local people. That's right. More serious note really we have received a report of a number of break-ins to cars in Dunapatrick and Navan. It was during a funeral service in Dunapatrick Church last Thursday a number of cars attending the funeral were broken into unfortunately. Small items such as mobile phones, laptops and bags were taken from the car and of course the cars themselves were damaged. You can only imagine the disruption it caused to people who are attending a funeral at the time. If you saw anything suspicious in the area last Thursday, please contact Gardy and Navin with information. May I take this opportunity just to remind listeners to remove property from cars when they are parking them up. And also a note in relation to funerals. It has become practice these days for neighbours or friends maybe to stay and keep an eye on the home of a grieving family. And this can only be a good thing as it reassures the family and it gives them a bit of peace of mind when they're out uh, burying their loved ones. OK, because there are unscrupulous people out there and they're of watching course. out for the death notices and yeah. that sort of thing yeah. and knowing the house may be empty. We're going to conclude this week in RD where Gardaí are investigating burglary. That's right. Finally, a burglary in RD. It occurred last Thursday and it occurred in the John Street area of RD. Homeowners returned from work on Thursday evening to find that the house had been broken into by the back door and it had been ransacked. Uh, unfortunately, a small amount of money was taken. However, from inquiries, the guards have narrowed down the time frame for the burglary to approximately 4.45 to 5pm last week, last Thursday. And CCTV has been uh, viewed and local inquiries are ongoing. It would be a quite busy area of RD and we would ask any Ardonians who were passing by the John Street Currabeg area to reflect if they saw anything suspicious last Thursday evening. We, the Gardaí and RD, would be thankful for any information they could give us. OK, Garda Sharon White of RD, Garda Station. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you today, let's return to you and what you've been saying to us. Uh, Marie Kearns is back uh, with some more of your calls and comments. I am indeed. Eileen tweeted us in relation to the nurses dispute. Standing with the nurses today, I understand patients' frustration with cancellation of appointments, but system is broken. We need to support our nurses in their quest for change. Michael says Tony from County Lowe, the nurses are starting to show their true true colours now. 
where this next strike action is going to affect people with disabilities, cancer patients and many more. Gone is the facade of the angelic Florence Nightingales taking this action on behalf of the public when they refused the invitation to talk about staffing matters without paid talks they refused and showed their true objective. This is purely about pay packets which actually didn't look so bad from the one published on television showing a net take home uh, of over €1,000 which is not bad after tax. Either they are the third highest paid nurses in Europe or not, which would not be a bad standard for a small country still deeply in debt, when some pe- which some people seem to forget. I hope they enjoy their 30 pieces of silver when someone dies as a result of this escalated action. OK, well, little support there from Tony. Uh, no doubt uh, the action has escalated and it's a little bit more than people being discommoded. Uh, some very serious concern for patient safety and as this dispute goes on without any sign of resolution. Uh, There is little doubt uh, that uh, the concern will be all the more warranted uh, but like any dispute there's two sides in it uh, and indeed we hope uh, that the two can find a a meeting of mind somehow so that those in the middle, the patients namely uh, will get the care that they're entitled to. Jack says if the government forced the nurses back to work the health service is bad now but if they lose the strike there will be a flood of nurses leaving this country. The government might win the war and lose the peace. Well nobody will lose that's uh, the way these things go there will be a formulation of words uh, which will make it seem as though everybody has won. Bernadette is a former nurse and she phoned in and she says that she always understood it, that nurses would not go on strike. They would do everything else, work to rule or whatever it took. But she thinks it's a national disgrace. Our health service is not being serviced 100%. We cannot survive with nurses being on strike, she says. Although I'm not in favour of the, mm-hmm. of the strike, I am in favour of better conditions and pay rise, but don't think they should abandon the ship. The other thing about nurses, there's a lot of gaps in the service. I've set in nurses stations where there's a change of shift and the consultant doesn't arrive for hours. Lots of things that need to be addressed. Well, there's no doubt about that and that's why the nurses have been talking about uh, striking for the last 20 years. It's 20 years since they last strike, so it's uh, not uh, the first time, uh, in other words, uh, and uh, certainly not unheard of, but uh, we have to leave it there for the moment and thanks uh, for that and thanks for bringing us those calls for that matter. Marie, now that's where we have to leave you for today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember the be a podcast of today's programme available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Ross Leahy in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 